You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. We're continuing our series in the life of Abraham. Uh, Today we'll be looking at a very, very big portion of scripture, Genesis chapter 20 and 21. Um, To some extent, I'll just be letting the text speak for itself, uh, but we'll be pausing at different junctures to uh, apply God's word to our lives. Last week, if you were here, you'll know that we looked at Genesis chapter 19, which is one of the darkest chapters in all of scripture. The chapter follows the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew, And shows us how the little decisions that he made over time, over many, many years, decisions to compromise what was right, to choose comfort over his convictions, to choose his reputation over righteousness, resulted in his very, very sad demise. He's a man who had everything. He had a beautiful family. He had wealth and riches. He was personal friends with God's chosen instrument in the world, and yet... By the end of his story, he is there lying naked in a cave with his two remaining family members desiring only to exploit his body. We also saw how Sodom, the city that he had settled within, had become so wicked and corrupt that the Lord destroyed it and the surrounding and equally corrupt cities in a hail of fire and sulfur. God's judgment, as we saw, is real and it is severe. And it is a fearful thing, truly, to fall into the hands of the living God. But as we turn the page to Genesis chapter 20 and 21, the narrative returns to the hero of this story, Abraham. We last last saw him in Genesis chapter 18, standing on that hill, overlooking Sodom, and pleading that God would show mercy to that city. That was a high point for Abraham. A powerful moment where he fulfilled his calling that God had given him in Genesis chapter 12 to be a blessing to the nations. Even though he didn't have a good history with Sodom, Sodom had somewhat offended him when he delivered them from uh, the the four western kings that had sacked Sodom. Abraham came and delivered them and the king of Sodom didn't treat him well. Nonetheless, Abraham showed them his love and pleaded that God would pour out blessing instead of his judgment. God was willing. He was willing to grant mercy to the entire city for the sake of 10 righteous people, but there weren't 10. There wasn't even one. Not even Lot was worthy to be saved. The only reason why God pulled Lot and his family out of that city was because of his covenant with Abraham. As God looked upon Lot, he remembered Abraham and for his sake saved him just as God remembers Christ when he looks upon those who trust in him today. Abraham, in other words, appears to be doing really well in this part of of his life. He's trusting in God's promises. He's growing in his understanding of God's mercy and his justice. He's thinking about others before himself. But most importantly, he's about to see God's promises fulfilled. Back in Genesis chapter 18, God promised that at this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. God's promises are on the brink of fulfillment and everything seems to be unfolding 
well for Abraham. That's what's going to happen in our text today. Isaac, the son of promise, the child of laughter, is about to be born. But as we're going to see, Genesis doesn't lead into the birth of the promised son with a reminder of Abraham's faith, with a reinforcement of his strengths. It's going to lead into Isaac's birth with a reminder of Abraham's weaknesses, his failings, so that we see that God fulfills his promises, not because we are faithful, but because he is faithful. And that is why Abraham could have hope, and that is why we can have hope as well. So buckle up, we're going to read through our text today, Genesis chapter 20 and 21. I'll be reading from the ESV translation of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight years old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, 
God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity as I have dealt kindly with you. So you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now, up front, I must say, these two chapters are the kinds of chapters where if you're doing a Bible reading plan, You're just reading, reading, and you're like, what was the point of all of that? Okay, we need to acknowledge that um, the truths that we are going to mine from these texts, uh, it's going to take some hard work. And it takes faith to believe that this scripture, just as all scripture, is breathed out by God for a purpose. And it's profitable. That's God's promise to us. There is profit for us in these chapters as insignificant 
as they may seem. So as we move forward, the title of this sermon is The Promises Fulfilled. The Promises Fulfilled. My aim today is to hammer home this point. Don't forget that God's great promises often start small. Don't forget that God's great promises often start small. We're going to have three points today. Very simply, first, old sins. Second, new faith. And third, small mercies. Old sins, new faith, small mercies. First, old sins. Our text today in chapter 20 of Genesis begins with a bit of deja vu. I was reading this text with my kids uh, a couple, just yesterday, and I asked my kids, does this sound familiar? And Lily said, that sounds like Abraham in Egypt. Well, if that was you, that is true. That is what happens. Abraham wanders around the land of Canaan, feeding and pasturing his flocks. He settles for a time in the land of Gerar, which is this kind of section in the land of Canaan and home of the people who would one day become the Philistines. And while he's there, verse 2 tells us that he went around telling everyone that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. That's what he did in Genesis chapter 12. When there is a famine in the land of Canaan and Abraham takes his family to sojourn in the land of Egypt. Back then he explained to Sarah that the reason why this was necessary was because she was a beautiful woman. And he was concerned that if the people in Egypt saw how beautiful she was, they would lust over her and to get to her, they would kill him. And so they would lie together about her true identity and tell everyone that she was his sister, not his wife, so that they would show favor to Abraham instead of killing him. Now remember what this meant. It meant that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his wife. Or as John Calvin puts it, he was willing to submit his wife to prostitution. But as evil as that was, what was even worse was that by this act, he was abandoning God's promise. You remember God's promise was that not only that Abraham would have a son, but it would be Sarah who would bear the son with him. They're supposed to have the child of promise together. But when Abraham says, I'm giving her up, Someone else can take her as their wife so that I can survive. He's he's abandoning God's promise. Without Sarah being his wife, God's promises would never be fulfilled. But Abraham didn't care, at least not in those moments. He was too concerned about his own safety to care about the fulfillment of God's promises. Now that happened, that, that episode in Egypt happened 24 years before the events in Genesis chapter 20. 24 years. And it seems like not much has changed. Not only did he do it again here in Gerar, but it seemed like he'd been doing it repeatedly throughout their marriage. In verse 13, he explains to Abimelech that he told Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, here he is my brother. At every place. This sin had become a pattern. Abraham didn't just lie. He had become a chronic liar, and it was all done for his own selfish well-being. And so what happens? The expected happens. Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah to be his wife. And once again, the promises of God are threatened, except this time it's on the eve of their fulfillment. 
God had said, at this time next year, you shall have a son. Sarah shall have a son and you shall name him Isaac. But now she is in the presence of another man, a powerful man, being called his wife. Now when he did all this for the first time in Egypt, back in chapter 12, in some ways you're like, okay, maybe that wasn't so bad. After all, he didn't know God very well back then. God had just recently spoke to him and they didn't have a strong track record together. Um, they, didn't, they, they didn't have much experience with uh, how the promises of God would unfold. But what has the Lord done for him since chapter 12? Well, he plagued Pharaoh and his entire household so that he would return Sarah to him. He gave Abraham the victory over those four western warlords who had sacked Sodom and defeated nine other cities and nations. He had seen the Lord pass through those covenant sacrifice animals in a raging fire. He had witnessed God uh, do what he said when he rained fire and sulfur onto Sodom and the surrounding cities. He had spoken to God face to face again and again and again. But even after all of this, he felt that he still had to watch out for himself. And to do that by lying about his wife's identity. He did not believe that God would take care of him. And so he tried to take care of himself. Abraham explains why he did this in verse 11. He says, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. You know, perhaps he thought that they were just like the people in Sodom. He had seen God destroy those cities because there were not 10 righteous people. And his assumption was that the people in Gerar were the same. They were wicked. They just did whatever they wanted and what what they would do to him, he didn't want to wait and find out. And so he lies again. But he was wrong. He was wrong about these people. Abimelech wasn't the man Abraham feared he was. He wasn't a sexual liberal like the Sodomites. He actually cares about respecting people's marriages. In verse 9, he calls adultery a great sin. And when God confronts him in that dream about marrying Sarah, he doesn't say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, she's willing to marry me. I'm willing to marry her. We, we love each other. What, what's the big deal? No, he doesn't say that, nor does he lie about it. Instead, he essentially says, oh, Lord, have mercy I had no idea, please don't punish me. Now, adultery may not be seen as a serious sin today, but it was back then. In those times, among the ancient nations, I'm not even talking about Israel, adultery was punished by death. And that would be reflected in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Jewish law. God agreed that adultery should be punished by death. And that agreement is reflected in his discussion with Abimelech in chapter 20. Now, I'm not saying that we should reintroduce capital punishment for adultery. In fact, when we look at the New Testament, what we see is Jesus showing a particular kindness and tenderness and patience towards adulterers. He received them, he taught them, he forgave them. And they were some of the most powerful examples of those who devoted themselves fully to Christ Because those who have been forgiven much, love much. That is the model for us today. It is to desire grace for the adulterer. But what we must always remember is that this grace didn't come for free. 
Our sins against God, including sexual sins like adultery, deserve death. And the only reason why we don't receive that punishment of death is because Christ paid it for us, for us in his own death. He died because we deserve to die. And we must not forget that we deserve to die because if we do, we will forget the beauty, the grace, and the power of the gospel. Abimelech knew that if he was guilty of adultery, he deserved death, but he had two things to say in his defense because he doesn't want to die. The first is that he didn't know. He didn't intentionally commit adultery He merely acted on the information that he had been given. Fair point. The second is that though he married Sarah, he never consummated that marriage in sexual union. Verse 4 says that he had not approached her. He was never intimate with her. So why should he be punished as if he had been? Those are good points. And God accepts them. But in so doing, he reveals something extraordinary In verse six, he says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God held him back from doing what he wanted. God has the power to restrain evil, to hold people back from sin. He doesn't always do that. In fact, Romans 1 tells us when, God, when, when, when people keep sinning without repenting, God gives them over to their lusts, to their passions, to live apart from God and his grace and his commands to their own destruction. But that's not what he does with Abimelech. God keeps him from sinning because he knew he acted in ignorance. But, but also, this is, the, this is the second reason, this is perhaps the more important reason why God held back Abimelech, is because letting him sleep with Sarah would have cast doubt on Isaac's heritage. Isaac, the child of promise, is supposed to be the son of Abraham, but also the son of Sarah. Together, they were to have this child, the heir of God's covenant Promises, And there needed to be absolutely no question that Isaac was the son of Sarah and Abraham together. And so God gives Abimelech a chance to make things right by returning Sarah to her husband. He's willing to do that, but not before he gives Abraham an earful in verses 8 to 10. This, what you could call a righteous Gentile, someone who had not benefited from God's revelation over time, like Abraham had. This righteous Gentile chastises Abraham for his cowardice and selfishness. What have you done to us? What did I ever do to you to deserve this? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abraham's defense, his response to those accusations is really pathetic. It's like, well, I thought you would kill me. And besides, she really is my sister. And uh, so I'm not really telling a lie. And this is what I always do. So maybe it's not so bad. Abraham, the believer. Abraham, the intercessor. Abraham, the blessing of the nations. Was once again showing his true colors as a selfish coward. Not only towards Sarah, but towards Abimelech and the people of Gerar. He didn't think about how his selfish actions would impact his wife. Or the people who would take her as their wife in ignorance. 
Now, if we were God and Abraham were our servant, by now, after failure after failure, what would we do? Abraham would be out of the picture. He'd be discarded and abandoned as a useless failed instrument that had proven to be unworthy to carry out our divine plans. But thanks be to God that God is not like us. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Abraham is exactly the kind of man God wants to use to, to, to let his unfolding purposes in the world come to fruition. And the reason for that, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, is that no man may boast before him. There would be no question that God and God alone was to receive credit for the good that he does through his people. And so God blesses Abraham despite his lying and selfishness and cowardice. God blesses him by moving Abimelech to give him sheep, oxen, and servants. He gives him a thousand pieces of silver and his choice of the land of Gerar. And most importantly, he returns Sarah to him with her purity intact. And in return, verse 17 says that Abraham prays to God. God heals Abimelech, his wife, and his concubines so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now it's interesting that Abraham could heal all those wombs but he couldn't heal the one womb that mattered most to him, Sarah's womb. Sarah's womb was still closed. Why was that? Because God wanted to be the one personally to open it. And this leads to our second point, new faith. In this beautiful display of tender care, as we transition to chapter 21, verse one says that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. God didn't open her womb by snapping his fingers or by sending a messenger or just by pronouncing a word. He visits her in this personal act of tender care and heals her by his own divine touch. And just like that, this 90-year-old woman who had suffered all these decades of disappointment and anger and frustration was able to conceive and did indeed conceive. 90 years of frustration and disappointment, 90 years of heartache and longing, all gone in a single moment because the Lord visited her. Her mourning was turned to dancing, her lament to laughter, as she declares in verse six, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You remember how she responded to God's promises? She laughed at them. She mocked them. She She laughed in skepticism and doubt. But now she's laughing not because she doubts, but because she has seen them fulfilled. Now, if you find yourself waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises, whether in faith or in doubt, let us remember what the Lord did for Sarah. And let us remember how long it took. 90 years of waiting, 90 years of doubting and disappointment, gone in just this moment of joyful laughter. And suddenly, all that waiting didn't seem so bad after all. That's the power of the joy of seeing God's promises fulfilled. In some ways, you could say that 
The longer we wait for God's promises, the sweeter they are when they are fulfilled. The weight of his eternal glory makes even the heaviest burden seem light and momentary in comparison. That day came for Sarah, and that day is coming for you as well. The day when God grants to those who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And so if today you find yourself waiting on God's promises, weeping or waiting in faith, or perhaps both, remember Sarah and say with the psalmist, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now that would have been a happy ending to this story. Everyone's laughing, child of promise is born. Abraham and Sarah are finally holding their own child in their arms, but the Bible is just too realistic for that. The Bible takes us from this mountain peak experience of sharing in Abraham and Sarah's joy back to the ugliness of human sin. They are rejoicing now, but they still need to reckon with the sinful choices that they made in the past. They had to reckon with Ishmael. Ishmael, you'll recall, was born about 16, 17 years ago when Sarah, she's done waiting for God to provide their own child, says, take my maidservant, Hagar. Take her as your wife and she can have a child and that child will be mine. She'll be my surrogate mother, but that doesn't work out because Hagar ends up despising her and then Sarah hates her and her son and wants nothing to do with them and has Abraham... um, uh, actually, she, she humiliates and mocks Hagar so much that Hagar flees. She only returns because God appeared to her. To her. And so they need to reckon with the sinful choices they made in the past. And that's what happens starting in verse 8. It says, Isaac was weaned, which is so likely two to three years after he was born. We're told that Abraham holds this great feast to celebrate the fact that their son had survived the most vulnerable years of infancy. So now Ishmael is 16 to 17 years old, and he's there celebrating, along with the entire uh, rest of the household, with his mother Hagar. It's a happy occasion, but then something catches Sarah's eye. Verse 9 says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. What's wrong with laughing? It's a happy occasion. Everybody's laughing, right? Now, the, the Hebrew word laughter here can just mean innocent laughter, but it can also mean laughing like in mockery, in, in disparaging someone. And that's what the context implies. And that's how Paul actually interprets it in Galatians 4. He describes Ishmael as persecuting Isaac. And so Sarah, hearing this mocking laughter, will have none of it. This is her moment. This is the moment that she's been waiting for, the moment of her triumph and celebration. And she's not going to let this young man ruin it. And so in a huff... She goes to Abraham in verse 10 and says, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Notice the repetition of how she refers to Hagar. She doesn't call her by name. She doesn't even call her her maidservant. She calls her this slave woman. It's her, her words, her tone is just dripping with poison. This, this woman, I cannot bear the sight of her. Send her out. I don't care if she dies. Now this makes Abraham very angry. 
Verse 11 says, this was very displeasing to Abraham because to him, Ishmael wasn't just the son of this slave woman. He was Abraham's son. They developed a father-son relationship over 16 to 17 years, and they loved one another. The idea of sending him away to satisfy the whims of his jealous and angry wife seemed ridiculous to him. But then something unexpected happens. God speaks and affirms what Sarah had told him. The Lord tells Abraham to do what Sarah has told him because of verse 12. This is the key verse, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac is the heir of the promises, not Ishmael. Isaac is the one that I have a covenant faithfulness and love towards, not Ishmael. I will bless Ishmael, I will multiply him, and princes will come out of him, but Isaac is the one I have chosen. This, my friends, is the mystery of divine election. It's the mystery of divine election. God chooses Isaac over Ishmael, not because one's more righteous than the other. In fact, as we see later in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac, when he marries Rebekah, ends up committing the same sin as Abraham with the same people in Gerar. He lies about his wife and says, she's my sister. Isaac is a liar. He's gonna be a chronic liar. God doesn't choose him because he's more righteous. He doesn't choose him because he has better bloodlines. They're both sons of Abraham. The only reason why Isaac was chosen over Ishmael was because of God's sovereign choice. The apostle Paul wrote extensively about this in Romans 9. Citing this verse, he's expositing chapter 21 in order to show that it wasn't the biological children of Abraham, what he calls the children of the flesh, who are heirs of God's covenant with Abraham. It is the children of the promise, those whom God sovereignly chooses and speaks the word of his grace towards. This shows us that people don't become part of God's people by virtue of any qualities they possess. They become part of God's people by God's sovereign grace. And that is a value that is so important to us as a church that it has made its way into our name. This sovereign grace church is a commemoration and a celebration of this truth that God chooses not because of our works, not because of our righteousness, but because of his sovereign grace. Now, I want to take some time to walk through how this applies to us because this isn't meant to throw us into a spiritual crisis. It can very easily do so. So many people respond to the doctrine of election, election by asking, so, so am I chosen or am I not? That's the wrong application of a right doctrine. The Bible never challenges us to ask that question. Am I chosen or not? Well, if I just think hard enough, maybe I'll come up with the answer. Now, the Bible challenges us to ask ask ourselves this question. Do I trust in Christ or not? Do I believe that he is Lord? Do I believe that he died for my sins and that he rose from the dead or do I not? If If you don't believe that, then the doctrine of election isn't meant to make you say, well, I guess I'm not chosen. I'm going to hell. I have no hope. God has not chosen me. 
No, that's not what you're meant to say. It's meant to make you say, God, I may not believe right now, but I want to learn. I perhaps even believe in you. I really do, but I know I can't without your help. And so open the eyes of my heart. Give me the gift of faith. Raise me to spiritual life so that I can know you through your son, Jesus Christ. And if you do trust in Christ, the doctrine of election isn't meant to make you say, well, now I can live however I want because I'm chosen. I have the stamp of approval on my heart and now I can live however I want. Now that is a horrible abuse of this doctrine. And in an ironic way, it actually proves that you're not chosen because someone who has received the gift of God's sovereign grace would never think that way. Or perhaps you might be tempted to think that way, but you won't think that way for a prolonged period of time. If you truly trusted in Christ, believing in him for the forgiveness of sins, then the doctrine of election serves to make you even more grateful for what God has done for you in Christ. And out of that gratitude, it makes you even more desiring to be obedient to his commands, to live in a way that pleases him, to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. It makes you realize the true depths of God's mercy, that he didn't save you because you were good enough or you had a soft enough heart or you came from the right family. He saved you because of his sovereign choice. You belong to him because he chose you, pursued you, and purchased you by the blood of his son. And therefore, he will complete what he started in you. That is the true beauty of God's grace. And it makes those who are truly born again fall down on their knees in worship as they offer their lives to God as a living sacrifice in obedience to him. And that's how Abraham responds. He responds to God's sovereign election of his son Isaac with obedience. And perhaps in those moments he recalled his own election. That God chose him, this insignificant man, in the land of Haran. This nomad, this shepherd, wasn't particularly rich. Married to a barren woman, couldn't have children. And yet God chose him to be the vehicle of his divine blessings that would spread throughout all the world. And so he obeys. As hard as it was, Abraham let his son Ishmael go. With this fresh knowledge and reminder of God's sovereignty and God's promise to bless Ishmael, verse 14 says that he personally rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water and he puts it on the shoulders of his wife and his beloved son and sends them away. Abraham may have doubted God in Gerar, but here he was able to believe once again. He believed that God would fulfill his promise and take care of Ishmael. And if you read ahead to Genesis chapter 22, um, I anticipate preaching on this in two weeks, you'll see that this set the stage for a greater sacrifice as God calls him to give up not just Ishmael, but Isaac. A test that he would pass as he finally learns to walk by faith in the promises of God rather than the judgment of his own sight. <clears throat> Verses 15 to 21, we don't have time to look at them, but the, the, the main purpose of their place in chapter 21 is to describe how God keeps his promise to Abraham 
by rescuing Hagar and Ishmael from dying in the, in the wilderness. And verse 20 says that God was with the boy and he grew up. God always keeps his promises. That's not the question. The question is, will we believe it? Now chapter 21 ends, we'll, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time here, not much, but here I think is the most important point for us. This seemingly insignificant, innocuous exchange between Abimelech and Abraham, it doesn't have any drama, it doesn't have any household plagues or divine speeches or miracles, it's just two men of influence, wealth and power trying to work things out between them, trying to come up with some political arrangement that will satisfy both parties. But here, here I think is the most significant event for us today. And uh, it leads to our final point, small mercies. <clears throat> Verse 22 opens with Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, approaching Abraham with a request. They know he's a powerful man, not because he has an army. You know, you notice Abraham doesn't have his own commander of his army there. He's there by himself. That's not why they approach him with this kind of desire for a peace treaty. They come to him because they know that God is with you in all that you do. They know that he serves a mighty God who can do anything. And so they want to make a deal that Abraham will never deal deceitfully with them or with their offspring again. Abraham agrees. But in exchange, he wants something in return, a small but meaningful token of their political arrangement. In verse 25, Abraham talks about this well of water. He's like, I dug this. I dug this well myself. And your servants, Abimelech, took it from me. And Abimelech's like, well, I didn't know about that. And Abraham's like, well, okay, if you really want me to have this well, then uh, let's make a covenant. Let's agree that this is my well. That's what they do. They gather all the appropriate animals, they enter a, a covenant, a sacred promise made in the presence of God, and Abraham is given this well. Now, do you see the significance of this moment? This land, this tiny piece of land is in the land of Canaan. And it now belonged to Abraham. 25 years earlier, God promised that the land of Canaan in its entirety would belong to Abraham and to his offspring forever. But until this moment, not a square foot of it belonged to him. Abraham was starting to see God's promises fulfilled. They weren't completely fulfilled yet, but they were on their way. The same was true of the promise to give him offspring and kings that would descend from him. He didn't see that, but he now had a son. God's promises were beginning to be fulfilled. Now this teaches us that God's promises aren't usually fulfilled instantaneously. Sometimes they are, but not usually. Sometimes they need to unfold over time. And the challenge for us is when we see the part, but not the whole, when we only see this moment in time and not how God is unfolding that promise over time, the question is, will we trust God? Will we just see the part and complain that we don't have the whole? Or will we rejoice that we at least have the part? Abraham rejoices, and he rejoices as any new homeowner would. He starts to decorate the place. He plants a tree a tamarisk tree, a beautiful tree that's going to grow to over 30 feet tall. And there, he pauses and calls upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, in worship. 
he renames this place in verse 31, Beersheba, which means well of the oath, and calls upon the name of the Lord, calling God a new name. He's called him El Shaddai, El Roy. Now he calls him El Olam, God of eternity, the everlasting God, because it is only the everlasting God who will be able to, to, to bring his promises to completion. And so as we consider how this applies to us, an old saying comes to mind. Listen, Zechariah 4, verse 10. It's not a direct quote, but it's based on that verse. The saying is this. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't look down on the small victories in your life, the small answers to prayer, the small progress in your sanctification, because in God's mighty hand, those small things are exactly what are gonna turn into his biggest blessings. Perhaps you're like Abraham. You're on this wind streak of spiritual highs. You're praying for people, you're doing what's right, you're trusting in God, but then that all too familiar temptation catches you off guard and you find yourself committing the same sins that you used to months ago before that spiritual high season and you start thinking, wow, I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't progressed, I haven't grown. All of that was for nothing. It was in vain. Well, God's word for you today is don't despise the day of small beginnings. God's doing a work in you. It may not be as complete or as fast as you'd like, but that doesn't mean it is not there. Can we learn to celebrate the small things? No, we don't want to settle in the patterns of sinful habits but we don't want to pass over the times when God gives us victory over them either. We want to celebrate the victories, be grateful for them, and share them with others. You know, one of the values that we have in our church is the constant, deliberate even, practice of gratitude. It's the reason why after communion, we open the microphone up for people to share testimonies of God's goodness. That's an opportunity for you to express gratitude You know, when we begin our prayer times and our prayer meetings and our pre-service prayer meetings, when we talk with one another in engaging in biblical fellowship, we, we want to cultivate hearts of gratitude. And the way to cultivate a culture of gratitude is not by seeing the big, big things multiplied. It's gonna be by the small things seen and celebrated. God helped me to spend my time better this week. God has been giving me faith to trust his promises. God has provided friends for me who care for me. God gave me a meaningful conversation with that child who's been rebelling. God brought me back to the gospel and comforted me this week when I was feeling condemned. It's the small things that make all the difference so that when someone asks you how you're doing, our minds don't turn automatically to all that's wrong with our lives, all that's missing but instead we see the small things, the small beginnings of God's mercy. And then the things that we start sharing with other people are characterized by faith, by hope, by joy. Even in the midst of trial and struggle, you can see the small evidences of God's grace in your life and celebrate them. You see God's promises start to flower even though it hasn't grown to its fullness yet. Let's celebrate those small things, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of one another.
to be able to say, I am grateful for how God is working in your life. I am grateful for how God has used your word, your example to bless me, to challenge me, to correct me. Let's share evidences of God's grace with one another, publicly and privately, as we work together in the grace of the gospel to cultivate a culture of gratitude. And as we do, may God, the everlasting God, who flowers each promise of his word, be glorified in his holy name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking a sinful, selfish man like Abraham and turning him into a man of faith who can be an example to us. You redeem those who are lost. You heal those who are wounded. You fix those who are broken. And all of us today, without exception, come to you as broken, weak, foolish people. And so, Father, we call upon you by the work done for us in Christ and by the power of the Spirit applying that work to make us men and women of faith who trust your promises, who celebrate the small things, and who wait upon the Lord for the fulfillment of your great promises. May you do that in our lives and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.